We begin today that look at the Prince of Peace. And as we look to Isaiah's words today in the second chapter, perhaps we will begin to see the unfolding of the picture of God's promises that come to us through the prophet. We begin today from Isaiah chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. Hear the word of God as it comes to us through the scriptures. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it's always this time of year that I begin, and you don't understand when I say, Happy New Year. And of course, that's because we are beginning again, beginning again to take a look at the gospel cycle, the story of the good news. And today we begin it once again as we enter into Advent, looking toward Christmas and moving on toward Easter, from manger to cross and then to the empty tomb. Sure, we'll hear from Matthew some this year, though we might not spend six months on it like we did with Luke. But there's plenty to explore, including the proclamations of the prophet Isaiah here in Advent, upon which Matt proposed our Advent theme, Prince of Peace. Now, the Advent writings uh, from Isaiah offer, among other things, a word of hope. They bring to us in Advent one of the greatest collections of God's promises that we can explore, including predictions of a Messiah. They also express the culmination of all of our hope and begin to paint a picture of the world that God had in mind. They paint this picture of the world toward which God is working and toward which His people are moving, a world characterized by justice, righteousness, and peace. First of all, though, I think we probably need to explore a little bit about who the prophet Isaiah was. Because, uh, I don't know, perhaps, uh, perhaps you might have missed that somewhere along the way. I always like to refresh myself as I begin to explore Old Testament figures particularly. But Isaiah is one of the big ones. He's one of the two major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah being the other. And is the first one that we come across as we explore the latter prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah was a prophet in the kingdom of Judah back in the 8th century B.C., a century during which he witnessed the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians. 
Isaiah's calling as a prophet was primarily to the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, including the city of Jerusalem, urging the people to repent from their sins and return to God lest they experience the same fate as their northern neighbors. Isaiah also foretold the coming of the Messiah and the salvation of the Lord. And many of his prophecies predicted events that would occur in Isaiah's near future. But they also look further out and explore the events of the distant future, such as the coming of the Messiah, and eventually some events still to come in the last days, or as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the day of the Lord. Gene Tucker, the noted Old Testament scholar and professor of Old Testament at Emory University's Candler School of Theology, describes Isaiah's work in this passage particularly as this. He says, Isaiah's prophetic voice announces what will happen. First, Mount Zion will be elevated and exalted. Second, there will be a pilgrimage of all peoples to the holy mountain so that the God of Jacob may teach them his ways. And third, the motivation for their pilgrimage is stated. The law and the word of Yahweh go forth from Jerusalem through the witness and lives of God's people. So let's take a look at those one at a time. First, Zion will be elevated and exalted. Mount Zion, or the city of David, as it was called, um, is the Israeli name for the oldest settled neighborhood in Jerusalem. And it's a major archaeological site even to this day. It's on a narrow ridge running from south of the Temple Mount up to the Temple Mount as it currently sits. Back in the Bronze Age, it was a walled city and is the place where King David built his palace and established his capital. The city of David enjoyed a a highly defensible position. Now I'm going to take this crew right over here in their section of the sanctuary to try to illustrate it a little bit. Uh, We'll say that they are Mount Zion or the city of David. Hello, David's people. How are you? Now here on the west side of this city of David, there was what was called the Tyrothean Valley. It was a rather shallow valley back Uh, in the time of David, which was around 1000 B.C., and has since, oh, just because of all the archaeological rubble and the city being pounded and uh, leveled and then rebuilt again, that valley is kind of filled in in the present day. But here south of the city of David, you have the, the Hinnom Valley, or sometimes called the Valley of Gehenna. It was the garbage dump of the city. In fact, Jesus tells at some point a a story about folks being tossed into the Gehenna Valley, into the garbage dump. Then you have over on this side the Kidron Valley, which is the deepest of those and uh, is a very steep hillside that leads down into the Kidron Valley from the city of David. Over on the other side of the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and today's cemetery for the city of Jerusalem. So you have these valleys surrounding the city of David, except for where? 
up on the northern side. And just like in our sanctuary, they built a wall (laughs) up on that northern side of the city. It was a defensible position because, and that was an important thing, because in those days they saw looming threats down in the south below the Mediterranean Sea. What was the great civilization down there? It was Egypt. That's right. I heard you. And then, and then up to the northeast, who was it that was just, they were, their numbers were beginning to swell? The Assyrians. That right. Up in the northeast of Jerusalem sat the Assyrians. And they had seen the Assyrians in, in uh, Isaiah's time come down from the north and invade the northern kingdom of Israel. And much like the Judeans experienced later on at the hand of the Babylonians, their young leaders were carted away into exile. The city was laid in ruins and the temple area that they used in that day at Bethel was leveled. Isaiah speaks to a people who has seen that take place and he knows that they yearn for a place of peace where a nation does not lift up a weapon against another nation. During the reign of Hezekiah, the walls of the city were expanded westward and took in what had previously been a little suburb on the outskirts of the city. Under Solomon, the city was expanded and the temple was built. And with the splendors of Solomon's temple well known, Isaiah's words portraying Jerusalem as the world's focal point, the world's holy city seemed right and true. Now, one other thing about the city as a defensible sort of position. As they saw the Assyrian threat up in the north, they realized that they had a walled city up on these steep banks and they were almost impregnable except they had one problem. They had no water in the city. But just down at the bottom of the hillside, down into the Kidron Valley was the spring of Gihon. And in Hezekiah's time, they decided to bring the waters of the spring into the city. Now, this was pretty marvelous and remarkable back in the Bronze Age. But they began a tunnel at the spring, and they started from the other end at the Pool of Siloam. Well, what they hoped would be a pool when they got the water in it, a tunnel. And they met in the middle within three feet of each other. A quarter of a mile they dug and met each other so closely. Pretty remarkable for, uh, for Bronze Age engineering, I would think. Well, uh, we had the opportunity to go through Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah was the king who had it built. And as you enter Hezekiah's tunnel at the Gihon Spring, the water's lower than knee deep, and the ceiling is oh, just up above your head. But as you travel through the tunnel... The ceiling gets lower and the water's coming up and you begin to wonder if you're going to run out of room. But it was a remarkable sort of piece of engineering that they pulled off in those days. Here the city of David sat in its very defensible position. And as far as the Jews were concerned, it was the center of the world. But Isaiah saw it as a place of peace to which the nations would come and begin to live out that kingdom of peace that he foresaw. Secondly, 
We know that Isaiah says that there'll be a pilgrimage of all peoples to the holy mountain so that the God of Jacob may teach them his ways. To Zion, the nations would come seeking instruction and revelation. And they, not God, would destroy the weapons of war. Their swords would be beaten into plowshares. Their spears into pruning hooks. There would be no war anymore. And the acknowledgement of and trust in God is the basis for peace. Zion becomes the desired destination where everybody wants to come. Do you remember the first time you heard something like this? Now that you've accomplished this great feat, what are you going to do now? Well, the first time I heard that, Oral Hirschheiser was coming off the mound after pitching the seventh game of the World Series and winning. And they said, now that you've won the World Series, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to Disney World. That's right. Disney World was the desired destination. Well, as the prophet's word is heard, in response to the call of God, God's people respond. The desired destination for us, we're going to God's holy mountain. That's where we want to be. You talk to some of your teenagers as they, or, or tweenagers as they go to their first dance or they go to a movie with their friends. They come home and you say, well, who all was there? And I say, everybody was there. And that's what Isaiah sees. At God's holy mountain, everybody's there. Every nation comes. All people are represented and they come to hear the word of the Lord and receive the instruction of the Lord so that they might learn his ways. You see another good version of this in the second chapter of Acts in the description of all the gathered people in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. People from all over the known world united by the movement of God's spirit, the experience of common language and understanding and then stirred by Simon Peter's Pentecost message. And then in Revelation, we get a similar picture of God's people gathered around the throne of God in worship and praise. All of these are beautiful pictures of the culmination of all things at what is perceived as God's dwelling place. For Isaiah, that place is Mount Zion, God's holy place. Professor Lowell of Harvard University once said that there were three profound things about Christopher Columbus's discovery of America. First, when he left Spain, he didn't know where he was going. Second, when he arrived in the New World, he didn't know where he was. And third, when he reported back to Ferdinand and Isabella, he didn't know where he had been. (laughs) Well, according to Isaiah... Those who visit the mountain of the Lord will know what they're looking for. And after they've been there, they'll know where they're going. Because third, the motivation for the pilgrimage is stated. The law and the word of Yahweh go forth from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord not only calls them and teaches them, but it also sends them out to spread this word of the Lord 
amongst the peoples of the earth because they yearn for peace. And they would spread peace. I don't know if this applies to you, but I know that there have been people in this congregation and in this community who have sent their loved ones off to war. And they have sat at home waiting to hear from that loved one. Can you imagine what that must be like if you've not experienced that? I mean, here Isaiah sits with evil as they perceived it on their doorstep and they are dreading the terrible news that might come that today their land would be invaded. They yearned for peace. They hoped for peace. They dreamed of peace. And as Isaiah the prophet shares them this picture of what the world may look like in the reign of God, they yearn for it and hope for it and can just grasp it. Isaiah characterizes the word of the Lord as truly authoritative, fully able to bring about a peace in the land that no other one could accomplish. It's a culmination, a completeness, a dream yet to be realized. The announcement is a vision of peace for all people in which the nations come to Jerusalem to learn the ways of justice And having heard that proclamation, they're called to walk in the light of the Lord. And the point seems clear. Those who already live in the presence of God are admonished to take the first steps on the path that all the nations will one day tread. And the appropriate response to the vision is to be guided into that place of peace, to be guided by that vision of peace, Thus, the light of the Lord becomes the light of the world. I went to visit uh, Christ United Methodist Church in Franklin, Tennessee several years ago to do some youth ministry consulting. And and, uh, I thought they had an intriguing youth ministry mission statement and prayer the way they used it. And that mission statement and prayer went like this. God... Let everything that we do revolve around you. Let everything that we do revolve around you. They called their United Methodist Youth Fellowship Orbit. I thought that was so neat. Let everything we do revolve around you. You see, the light in their midst of their youth ministry became the light for the church. And the light from the church becomes the light in the community. And the light in the community becomes the light in the county. And the light in the county becomes the light in the state. And the light in the state becomes the light of the country. And the light in the country becomes the light of the world. Because God is in their midst. And they dare to dream the dream. At St. Matthew's we picture it this way. We are a family of faith reaching out to share the life-changing love and grace of Jesus. And today, this place 
is God's holy mountain. And you've come to hear the word of the Lord, and he would speak to you of justice and peace and righteousness. He would speak to you of his ways. Though outside are looming forces of evil and wrong that would terrify you, this is the place to be. People like Harlan Hopi and so many others have loved that we've loved and lost knew that. That this is still God's holy place. Psalm 24 says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be ye lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And we would dream his dream. The people who have been to the holy mountain and have seen the light now bear the calling of God. And they are going to share light and justice and righteousness and peace and hope and joy and love and grace. Because you see, above all, this is an announcement of the future reign of God. This is good news in the Old Testament prophetic sense. The time is not specified, but the announcement is concrete. It's not fortune-telling, but it is a statement of certainty that history will reach its goal, its culmination, and a far-reaching peace that encompasses all the nations and a kingdom that knows no end will be before us. It's tempting for us in an era of terrorism and military conflict, x-ray scans, pat-downs, international terrorism, to simply write off such an announcement as this one from Isaiah as unrealistic. The irony of it is that the terrorism comes from fanatics arising out of a people with whom we share a common faith heritage as children of Abraham. So what do we do? Give up? No. Who can read or hear these lines from Isaiah and not have his or her hope for peace rekindled? Surely such a reign of God could not come among us unless we have and keep alive in each generation a vision of that reign brought about not because we've beaten down our brothers and sisters but because of life-changing love having gone forth from God's holy mountain. The people have heard and the nations have come and it is a world of peace that they desire. I don't know when that culmination will be. But for now, just a little light, just a little hope, just a little guidance, a word from the Lord from His holy mountain, you and me doing our part, that's enough to get us started. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We close our service today with 
the singing of the hymn, I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light. It's 206 in your hymnal. And as we sing, you're invited to bring your gifts to the birthday party. As we launch into birthday gift for Christ and we bring our gifts, may it be an expression of who we are as God's people, seeking to share just a little bit of light with the world. As we sing, if God's calling you to respond in another way, then do so. Perhaps to be a part of the St. Matthew's Fellowship, we welcome you. Let me encourage you as you come and leave your gift to say your prayer for whoever the child is that will receive it because they're looking for a little bit of hope and they'd like to have a little bit of peace and they may need you to help paint the picture for them. Let's stand and sing together.